0: Queer Business Success, the podcast for LGBTQIA business owners, aspiring entrepreneurs, coaches, caregivers, and the allies who love our community. We tell the stories of why our businesses were formed, who we serve, our challenges and successes, and we offer sound advice to our fellow queer entrepreneurs. Our hope is to inspire, enlighten, and highlight the services that our LGBTQIA businesses and allies offer. If we can do this, so can you. We believe that we need more LGBTQIA business owners, not only for our community, but for a better world. Here's our host, Anne-Marie Zanza.
1: Hi, this is Anne-Marie Zanzel, and welcome back to another episode of Queer Business Success. I am interviewing Steve Diamond today. He is a trauma relief expert. So, Steve, tell me your story. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hi there. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, what a, a pleasure it is to speak to my own community.
1: Yeah, I, don't I get love that,
2: that. Yeah, I don't get that opportunity very, very uh, often. But um, thank you so much uh, for having me on the broadcast.
1: So Steve um, was really, what it really interested me, I mean all the people that apply interest me, but what really struck me is Steve actually has a relationship with a very famous program that was on Netflix called Tiger King. And so I would love for Steve to tell us how that all came about and because we started to talk about it before recording goes, are we recording this? I said, yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> See, tell me how so, it all happened.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the, the quick Reader's Digest version. So um, I'm in Tiger King 2, the Doc Antle story, which is a separate series from the first two seasons. And what happened was when Netflix started interviewing me, they realized that this story was much bigger than they ever realized and that it deserved its own series. Mm -hmm. So they took me out of season two and they created another um, uh, vehicle, basically, uh, that would stand on its own to tell the Doc Antle story. So basically, it's the first 15 years of my magic career Um, Doc Antle, who was the uh, long-haired guru surrounded by all of the women, uh, his harem of women. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, you remember him. So he was my business partner uh, early, early on when I very first got started. He came to see me in a show that I did for a charity show for Longwood College, which was at the time an all-female college in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was about 16 years old at the time. And afterwards, after he saw my show, he came up to me and said, wow, you're really great. We could do a lot of good things together. And I was like, yeah, why is that? And he was like, well, I've got tigers in my backyard. You want to come see them?" So a lot of my people question. approach.
1: Wait a minute, wait, wait. wait. Yeah. What's the show you did when you were 16 years old? Magic?
2: Yeah, I was okay. a magician. Okay. I had my own magic show. And I was performing at this state theater in Farmville, Virginia for this Longwood College. And, you know, a lot of people would come up to me after the show and they'll always have fantastic stories to tell me, but I've never heard someone say I've got tigers in my backyard. So that piqued my interest. And I was like, well, let's see him. A few days later, I showed up at his doorstep and lo and behold, he had lions and tigers in his backyard. Okay. And, um
1: Mom question. Sure. Mom question. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I have four kids. I've had 16 year olds. What did your parents say? Like...
2: They didn't know at first.
1: Okay. So did you, oh, was he still in Virginia at the time?
2: Yeah. He had just moved to Farmville, Virginia at that time. And okay, I was had he opened was up. in
1: Florida and you had to drive, fly down to Florida. And like, you're like, mom, I'm going to go see this tiger. <laughs> yeah.
2: Un, unbeknownst to me, he had just gotten out of trouble in Arizona for some drug related offenses and had moved to Virginia, I assume, uh, mm-hmm. to escape the law. And uh, but I didn't know any of this at the time. I was a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, sixteen-year-old with stars in my eyes, and had no idea of That's what I was walking into. Literally, walking into Satan's den, and just had no idea. I was bedazzled by the lions and tigers that were all around me, and even an elephant. Uh, at the time, she was a baby elephant named Bubbles, but uh, I kind of grew up with her in a way, and. And it was, it was just a magical experience to walk into this menagerie of all of these animals who were incredibly well-trained. And in fact, to this day, I still say that Bhagavan Antal is the greatest animal trainer of all time. I've never met anyone who could even come close to him in terms of his relationship with the animals and the things that he could get them to do. That's probably the only positive thing you will ever hear me say about him, Mm -hmm. Um, but I have to give credit where credit is due, and he taught me his philosophy, he taught me his methodology of of training animals, and um, it really came at the time in the beginning, in the early days, it came from a very spiritual place, Mm -hmm. and that was very formative for me and would uh, shape the rest of my career and life, really. Um, in those early days. So, you know, that's how it all started. And at the time you're living all of this, you don't realize you've just joined a cult. And no, you don't re- nice. you don't yeah. realize that, that there are so many bad things that are going to happen as a result of this. And I just had no idea. I was just, you know, a very young kid with stars in my eyes. And I saw these animals as a way to become a superstar of magic, which was the only thing that I really cared about at the time. And I was willing to do whatever it took uh, for us to to get there. And I think Bhagavan realized that he is a person of extraordinary intellect. Mm -hmm. He has a a mental capacity that is far beyond most people Mm -hmm. and um, is one of the scariest individuals that I have ever come across. You know, I've traveled throughout over 100 countries Mm -hmm. and I've never met another human being like him, I would venture to say that I have personally shaken the hands of a million people Mm -hmm. on this planet and never have run across another human being uh, with his level of intelligence and his ability to control and manipulate people. It's really incredible. And so that's how it all started really. And it just went from there. So that, so the Tiger King broadcast It really covers that 15 year period in the very beginning. Uh, Eventually I broke away from him. Uh, We were on tour in South America. And in June of 1993, there was a children's television show in South America called Nubalus. And I had made some appearances on that show with him uh, and the animals while uh, we were on tour in South America. And the producers came to me and said, we would love to have you on the show as a regular. Um, You could do magic every episode, but we don't want the animals. We just want you. And that was my escape. I instantly knew that that was going to be my open door to get away from him. And um, that's what I chose to do. And so in June of of 1993, uh, we had a very violent altercation in the lobby of a hotel. And he suddenly realized everyone was watching him. And he got into an elevator and vanished. And I never saw him again.
1: That's a really amazing story. So <laughs> I have some questions. Sure, um,
2: go for it.
1: <laughs> I have a brother that's a Hare Krishna. So uh-huh. I'm familiar with with yep. cult-like activities.
2: <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um,
1: so first of all, would you define him as a sociopath or a or a
2: um, all of the above.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. He's as dangerous of a human being as you can get, mm-hmm. um, in my opinion, of course, allegedly. Mm-hmm. My lawyers make me say that. <laughs> but no. um, I, you know, like I said in Tiger King, um, nothing good will ever come out of an association with Bhagavan Antle. Uh He is an evil human being. And you know what really bothers me is that if you went to his facility in Myrtle Beach South Carolina right now and you talked to the slaves that he has working on the property they're not employees because they're indentured servants through a contract that he calls an apprentice program Mm -hmm. but I'm the one that helped him develop that apprentice program and I didn't know at the time Uh, I think I even typed the original contract um, that he was dictating to me and and I didn't know at the time what I was really involved in and what I was doing. But years later, I suddenly realized what it really was, was an indentured servitude program. So he could get free labor and he uses the cats as the bait. So he finds these people who have no families, who have no connections to any kind of a network that would miss them. So usually they're runaways. They're people you find on the street. They're, you know, all, they come from all kinds of different areas. And a lot of them are misfits, not all of them. But a lot of them are misfits and people who can't cope in in normal day societies. And they're on the fringes. He takes those people and he bedazzles them with the cats and mesmerizes them into wanting to be a cat trainer. And he fills their head with all these wonderful stories of how they're going to grow spiritually and and all of this kind of stuff. And then what he's really doing is uh, just creating... An indentured servant that's going to do his bedding twenty-four hours a day, and he has literally been doing that for thirty years plus. And so it's it bothers me that if you were to go to his facility right now and you were to walk in and start talking to these indentured servants, they would say to you, "Are you kidding? I'm here on my own free. I'm not a servant. I'm not in a cult. This is not a cult." You know when you're. In a cult, it's impossible to see it.
1: Right, absolutely. And,
2: and the only thing that creates that clarity is time and distance. Mm-hmm. So you have to remove the person from the situation and you have to begin the process of deprogramming. And I do a lot of that in my work at Life Skills Masterclass. I I do a lot of Deprogramming with cult members, people who have been entrenched in all kinds of shady religions and and other type uh, groups. Um, I've even had quite a few Nexus uh, Nexium type people that have come through, mm-hmm. and so there are um specific ways of deprogramming you if you've been in that kind of a situation and it all starts with removing you from the situation and creating time and distance
1: how do you remove some most people that are in a cult don't want to be removed from the situation you're so, right so how do you get them is it family how do you get people how do how do you take the first step so that somebody's like wait a minute he might be right this may be a cult situation. Like how do you get, yeah. and, and I'm really also, I have another question. Would you just, you know, how you described people that um, were attracted to the Bhagwan would you would consider yourself that way as well when you were 16?
2: Oh or yeah. Was, oh yeah. yeah. I was totally, I mean, I wasn't sexually attracted to him. He, at that time in my life, I had not even begin <laughs> to explore uh, my sexuality. So I didn't really understand a whole lot about my sexuality at sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um, I was only focused, laser focused on my magic career. That's all I cared about, all I thought about, and consumed twenty four seven. So if it wasn't in that boundary of my magic career, it was outside noise that I didn't pay any attention to. And at that time, sec, my sexuality was a part of that. Mm-hmm. So. I think Bhagavan used that to his advantage in some ways. Um, and he, he was uh, a very attractive individual physically, but he was also a very attractive individual mentally. He would use his intellect to captivate you mm-hmm. and, and pull you in as all cult leaders do. Mm-hmm. you know. So any well, cult so leader too. or religious figure has got to be, um an evangelical presence that has the ability to hold your attention Mm -hmm. and he certainly was the best in the business at that he used to joke back then that sometimes I would ask him I'd like what are you doing and sometimes he would laugh and giggle and say to me I'm starting a religion Mm -hmm. and we would laugh about it at the time but I had no idea the you know, the, the seriousness of that statement, uh, to me, I, I thought it was a joke.
1: So when you were in Columbia and you were on this talk TV show in their office, so obviously you had been thinking about getting out for a while.
2: Oh, when, yeah. I'd been trying to escape for years.
1: Yeah. How many years, honey?
2: I would say that the, um, it, the end for me was when Mitra died. So in the show, Tiger King, one of the stories that we talk about and we tell there is one of the employees that was working with us at the time, who was incidentally my best friend, um, he, his name was Mitra. Uh, Mitra was an incredible human being that unfortunately got caught up in Bhagavan's web, and through a series of mysteries, he suddenly died. Um, he slipped and fell off a cliff. Uh, the only two people that were on that cliff at the time was Mitra and Bhagavan. Mm-hmm. So I can't say with any authority that, you know, that Bhagavan killed him. I, I just don't think that the evidence is there to make that definitive statement. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you in my gut and how I feel deep down inside, there is no question mm-hmm. that he was involved in Mitra's death. And there's no question his family, um, uh, Mitra's family also feels the exact same way. And we have all of these years. And I've stayed in touch with his family. I'm very close with his brothers and and have stayed uh, in touch with them you know throughout all of this time. So I really think that um, there is you know, a lot to be discovered. The problem is this all happened so long ago and there were, there were no witnesses. There was one elderly lady who did see Mitra fall, but unfortunately she was in her older years at the time and she has since passed. So mm-hmm. there's really no one, you mm-hmm. know, to come forward and there's really no evidence mm-hmm. that could be dug up uh, all of these decades later. So and how, that how puts everything that? in a precarious precision.
1: So Mitra's death happened in how long, be, how many years was it between that and when you.
2: Um, I think it was about able to escape. It was three, three or four years um, after that, that, that I was able to uh, finally leave, but it, it was a long journey, you know, and he, I was a moneymaker for him. It was my so magic he show.
1: Want, he didn't want to let you go.
2: He didn't want to let me go. Because I was what was bringing in the revenue. You know, it was my magic show that was going to Asia, was going to South America, and was, uh, you know, getting all of these big dollar contracts. The contract we signed in Korea, for example, was worth over a million dollars. I never saw a penny of that.
1: That's horrible.
2: I did 800 shows. I did three shows a day, seven days a week, and some days on holidays, I did four shows a day. to the point to where I collapsed on stage and my production manager had to run on stage in the middle of a show, throw me over his shoulder and run out the building to a hospital down the street because I had collapsed of exhaustion. And that was after about like 750 shows. I did about 50 more shows after that. And then I was like, I can't do this anymore. I wasn't being paid. Uh, Bhagavan was in control of the whole operation and he wasn't going to give me a penny. And my production manager said to me, in the middle of the night, we need to just buy plane tickets and leave. And -hmm. I called my father. My father paid for our two plane tickets on a credit card and poof, we vanished in the middle of the night.
1: Thank goodness.
2: Mm -hmm. But he got me back Yeah. because a few months later, I was right back in his grips again and we were planning a tour to South America.
1: But then, you, again, something happened, and you were finally able to leave.
0: Yeah, and so it
1: sounds like I'm sure other cult members that you work yeah. with, it, sometimes it takes one, two, three, four times before they're able to finally break free.
2: It does. And I want to answer your question about how to get someone that, that is in the situation to mm-hmm. see reality. Mm-hmm. Um, very important question. And it's a very difficult answer because it's really a case by case basis. It depends on the situation, where they're at, how they're being held. You know, the difference between a religion and a cult is what happens when you try and leave. If you're in a religion, you're free to go. If you're in a cult, there's going to be all of these barriers and stopgap measures that are in place to keep you where you are. Um, You know, Bhagavan's apprentices can't just up and leave anytime they want and go out with their friends on the night of the town. Now, they I don't
1: have any money to.
2: <laughs> the excuse is that you need to be there for the animals 24 seven, that the animals are the first priority. Mm-hmm. But you, know, you couldn't even go into town if you wanted to in most cases. So that's the very definition of a cult. That's a red flag right there. So how you begin the process is you first begin Uh, communication with this person. And it's not, you should leave. It's not, you got to get out of there. It's none of those things. You don't want to have that conversation with them in the beginning. What you want to do is develop a relationship with that person based on trust. And when that person begins to trust you, then and only then can you begin the conversation of, I don't think this is in your best interest. And let me explain to you why. And then you can begin to outlay some things in a very non-threatening, very non-accusatory way that are just seeds for thought. And you don't want them to leave. You're not trying to get them to leave. You're not telling them to leave. You're All you're doing is just planting some seeds for thought. And then you nurture those seeds over a period of time. And those seeds will begin to grow in their mind, and then they can begin over time to become aware of certain things that maybe in the past they would discount or dismiss or devalue, thinking, oh, they just don't understand the situation that I'm in. But I'm here. I'm living it. So I understand the situation. This is the mentality of that person. And so when they're in the moment, they're thinking, you know, everyone on the outside, they just don't understand and they don't have a clue of what's really going on. It's not like they think it's always they, it's them, it's the outside. And this is the cognitive restructuring that a cult leader will do. They want to manipulate you into thinking, feeling, and believing everything that fits their narrative. Mm -hmm. So that's how they control you and how they, and they do it in a very clever way. They don't tell you what to do. They tell you what works for them. And you being an admirer of that person wants to emulate that because they make you want to be more like them. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, absolutely. I completely understand that.
2: And so you, so you begin to emulate their behavior and in through that, you become indoctrinated. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So when, so tell me about your business and what you, what you do. I, it's like, now we have the background. So <laughs> tell me about your bi- business and, and what you do and, and who do you help?
2: So I'm the founder of an incredible organization called lifeskillsmasterclass.com. Mm-hmm. And what we really do is help people reconnect with their authentic selves. Mm-hmm. So we do a couple things. Um I have an incredible coaching program called the Metacognition Codex program where we help people deal with root cause issues. So, you know, there are a lot of programs out there for stress, anxiety, depression, and things like that. But most of those programs only deal with a symptom level, uh, um, strategy by teaching you coping skills, Mm -hmm. but that's like putting a band-aid on a deep bloody wound that really needs stitches. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it doesn't solve the root cause of the issue. And back in 2003, I wrote a book called OCD, a life among secrets and Jane Pauly from the today show who had just started her own daytime talk show at the time called the Jane Pauly show. She read my book and she called me and said, I'm getting ready to publicly come out as having bipolar disorder. And I would love to have you and Howie Mandel on the show to talk about anxiety and stress disorders. Mm-hmm. Well, at the time, I had just written this book about my personal struggle with stress and anxiety. And I talk a little bit about Bhagavan and the whole uh, Zoom menagerie story in the book. Yeah. But I kind of glossed over it because I was really more interested at the time in talking about my struggles with OCD and what you could do to help yourself if you are suffering as I was. And so when she read the book, she had me on the program and something extraordinary took place. The next day after the show aired, I got tens of thousands of emails from people all over the world who had seen the show and they were struggling. And all of their communications all had one red thread that went through it. And the common thing was, please help me. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't an expert. I didn't have any resources at the time. I didn't know anything really about that. I just written a really clever book about my own struggle. And so... I was in therapy at the time and I was talking to my therapist about this and I kept looking for some sort of a resource or a course to point people to and I couldn't find anything that satisfied me. And my therapist said to me, well, if you can't find anything, maybe you should be the guy to create one. Mm -hmm. And I went, wow, yeah, maybe I should. Mm -hmm. And so in 2004, I released the very first version of my program And at the time, it was called When Anxiety Attacks. It was a four CD audio course. It's still available today. We sold it in Barnes and Nobles and stores all over the world. Mm -hmm. And it did really well. And that began this journey. Today, all these years later, we have a very vibrant community online. We have a great Facebook group. Uh, called Life Skills Masterclass Coaching. So if you, if you go to Facebook and search for that, you'll find our Facebook group. There's all kinds of free resources, free training videos and stuff inside. But really what we do is our coaching program. We um, get people, I deal with a lot of very difficult issues, um, not just cult survivors, but right now we're dealing with a lot of trans people who are struggling in their transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we deal with gay issues. Um, we deal with um, survivor issues. I have cancer patients who are, you know, dealing with with all kinds of cancer uh, type struggles. Um, I, I deal with incest issues, rape issues. We deal with really hardcore stuff, and and all of these things uh, are trauma that we carry around with us, and no one ever teaches us how. To deal with these issues. No one ever teaches us what to do. And so when you don't have the skills and you don't understand uh, how to manage these typical life situations, we're all going to have trauma in our lives. We're all going to experience bad things in our lives. But if no one is there to mentor you, to guide you and to teach you what to do and how to, to manage these things in your life, well, it can get the best of you and it can lead down very, very dark roads. And so essentially, that's what we do uh, in my organization.
1: So when you say life skills, what are some of the things you teach?
2: Well, on the surface level, let's just talk about dealing with stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So that's where we start because that is the most common thing that people d- deal with. Do you know the World Health Organization says 260 million people worldwide are dealing with anxiety and stress disorders right now. And I actually believe that over the last two or three years, maybe four years, that that number has doubled.
1: Yes, a, a pandemic will do
2: that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we start by teaching people how to think critically how to make better decisions in their lives and how to produce greater results. So we'll take you from where you are and we'll create a customized strategy for you that will take you from where you are to where you wanna be. The problem is most people spend more time planning their vacations than they do their lives. So we reverse that and we give people the tools and strategies that they need to be able to first think clearly and calm their brains mm-hmm. because most people are what I call walking dead. They're these zombies that go through life and they're just on this routine and they're just going through and they're not really living. They're just existing. <laughs> they go to work, they pay bills, and they get up the next day and they do it all over again.
1: Right.
2: And that's just existing, that's not living.
1: Well, a lot so of work it, I do with my clients is around conditioning. We're conditioned to believe us mm-hmm. be a certain way. And like when we finally embrace an authenticity, mm-hmm. it is a very, it is a very, un, we call it the peeling of the onion, you know, and because there's absolutely. Upon layers upon layers before you can get to what is our authenticity.
2: You're absolutely right. We, mm-hmm. we do that work too. and I, and And it's so valuable. We need Mm -hmm. more people like you uh, Mm -hmm. out there doing this kind of work because the demand is incredible.
1: I mean, it's, I know
2: it's huge. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just a simple thing because we're just, you know, when I joke in, in my talks, when I, I go into corporations and I do this big seminar called stress in the workplace, where I teach people how to manage their stress in the workplace. And, In that talk, I always tell people that, you know, we're spit out at birth and there's no one there with an owner's manual saying, here, you need to read this. (laughs) This is going to tell you everything you need because it's coming. And it would be nice if that happened to us, but unfortunately it doesn't. So sometimes we need that resource or we need that mentor or we need that place that we can go to that we trust that we know has experienced it themselves and has pulled themselves out of where we are. And so through that, they then have the experience to guide you and show you the path. You know, one of the great stories that I have is a young man in Colorado who was coming out Mm -hmm. and his parents were Mormon. And he didn't want to have anything to do with the Mormon religion. He thought it was silly, didn't want anything to do with uh, his parents' belief system. He didn't believe as they did, but he was just really struggling with how to deal with that. So he saw me on television and reached out to me through Instagram and said, I need some help. Can you help me? Today, it's 10 years later, and he is now third in command at a major corporation. Mm-hmm. And he was able to achieve that because we helped him find the clarity in his life. Mm-hmm. And we helped him understand that stepping into his authenticity was the only way that he would ever achieve greatness in his life. Because well, yeah. you, you can't be something great if it's not real.
1: True. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I do a lot of work with people stepping into their authenticity. So I absolutely understand. So what's the best thing about owning your business? I can, I bet I can answer that question, but you, you answer it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'll tell you for me, it's a couple of things. Um, you know, I used to chase money. Uh, mm-hmm. And early in my career, when I was a magician, really my motivation at that time in my life was money. Mm-hmm. And then in 2017, I was in a life-altering accident. I was on tour with Katy Perry at the time.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And um, I was in this horrible accident. And it changed my life. I had a near-death experience, did the whole transition thing, saw the whole white light, the whole nine yards. And through that experience, I learned that I wasn't done yet. And I had to go back. When I came back, I realized that now having the knowledge and the inspiration that i had been given i could no longer be the version of myself that i was and that i was going to have to rebuild myself one brick at a time Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and so i began that process Mm -hmm. and and i did it the right way i did it the authentic way i did it the way that was my own personal truth and what that taught me was that the things that used to be important to me no longer were. And I realized that the true value in living my life was being in service to others. And I realized that where I got the most satisfaction and the most excitement and the most passion in my life and when I felt most alive was when I was helping other people. Mm -hmm. And it had really little to do with me. And it had so much more to do with them. And I learned over time to step into that. And my life just transformed. It just became a thing where I woke up every day and I was excited to be alive. And I knew that I was helping people. You know, in the very beginning, it was really, really difficult because running an online business particularly is very different from running a brick and mortar business you know where you have a store that you can walk into and see products on a shelf so it's very very different there were a lot of struggles in the beginning it was very difficult and for a lot of years i didn't make a penny from it but i didn't care mm-hmm. because the work was so satisfying to me that i knew that i was on the right track and that i was doing what essentially was in alignment with my belief system and was in alignment with my core morals and values. No, I was just going to say, when you when you align yourself with those three things, you find your purpose. You
1: do. I understand.
2: And, and I found mine through this organization that I've now built, and it's incredible.
1: Um, I, I don't know if you looked me up at all not uh, online. I sure did. Uh, I do the same thing. <laughs> so I yeah. completely understand what you're talking about. And- you know, before I came out, one of the things... Um,
2: How old were you when you came I out? I was 50. Oh, was wow.
1: 27 years. I I was married to a man for 27 years. I had four children between the ages of 12 and 24. I was an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Wow. I, was, I graduated from Yale Divinity School. I had done a lot in my life and... I had achieved everything a woman was supposed to achieve in her life. I really had. I even married a rich man. Um, I had achieved everything and I was not happy. And I couldn't, for the life of me, put my finger on it. Like I had checked all the boxes and I had this restlessness inside of me. And like when I was younger, you know, I thought I was getting, you know, I like, you know, like I wasn't one of those people that came out you know, like, because I fell in love with somebody or anything. I came out on my own. And I realized like years before, when you come out later in life, you often do a lot of rethinking about your life and you things that you put in one basket, you take out and you put in another basket, like, a, sure. you know, a intense friendship with a girl, you know, it was a, had a crush on her, you know, like things <laughs> like that. And um, so what I really realized is that like the best thing I ever, I mean, it was really hard, hardest thing I've ever done and I've done a lot and, um, but I have absolutely no regrets because I am Why living would you? my most authentic version of me. I'm using all my skills from my past life, like, you know, being a chaplain, being a minister, all those things I did before to create something for other people so that they have a safe place to land when they're in the process of coming out. So that's, you know, so I understand exactly, you know, having a, you know, we in, in the later in life community, we call it a catalyst and a catalyst can be a person, but it also can be an event. And it sure. sounds like to me, your event was that car accident, and my event, actually was my ordination, but we can talk about that some other time. so um, so, what is the hardest thing about running your business?
2: I r- Really, I think the hardest thing for me is uh, time management.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, because I'm pulled in a bunch of different directions because I'm on a hit Netflix television series that hundreds of millions of people have have seen. That changes your life in profound ways. And so um, time management for me has really become uh, the biggest issue. There's a lot of travel involved. There's a lot of speaking engagements. There's a lot of community outreach programs. There's a lot of stuff, plus my coaching schedule, coaching my clients, you know, and I have other coaches that work with me. We call them relief mentors mm-hmm. at Life Skills Masterclass because I don't really like the term coach; it has a negative connotation in my world. So, uh, I have a, a series of relief mentors that I personally train mm-hmm. that that um, help me. Um, with, with these people. And then I have my own personal clients that I deal with. So there's a lot going on in my day every day. Uh, my company is growing like a weed. I mean, it's it's just incredible, even in the last 12 months, how incredibly um, robust the, the, the business has become. So because of that, um, time management for me is number one. I have to watch my schedule. I have to practice self-care. And I have to realize that these 18, 20-hour days that I pull sometimes are not serving me. No, and, not if, and if I don't take care of myself, I can't be in service to, yeah. to, to other people. Right. And that's been a lesson that I've had to learn recently. And that's a lesson awesome. that I've had to struggle with. So I would say that's the hardest part.
1: Do you think it's boundary setting? Oh, Sure. Yeah. I mean, because Because I'm a people pleaser sometimes.
2: Yeah. You know, I'm an entertainer at heart. You know, I'm an old gypsy. So so being um, uh, the entertainer who who has been indoctrinated since day one to get on a stage and please thousands of people at a time in your personal life, that translates to you can never say no. And so, yes, I think that boundaries, you setting boundaries, you know, in my Facebook group, I have a free training video. If any of your uh, viewers out there would would like it, just Mm -hmm. join my group. It's free. Mm -hmm. And in the featured section at the top of the group page, I have a whole series of training videos. One of them is on boundaries because it's so important. And I walk you through a whole boundary worksheet that I have that teaches you how to figure out what your boundaries are. Um, And it teaches you uh, also how to manage your boundaries and it gives you the strategy for protecting your own uh, energy. And so you might want to check that out.
1: Well, it's also interesting because I think one of the things people think that just because you know you have a problem with something like say, for example, boundaries um, doesn't mean it's repaired. And it's like, it's it's, it's a practice. So it sounds like, Steve, you may have to practice a little bit harder. <laughs> your founder, I
2: need, your need to work on your it.
1: boundary setting.
2: <laughs> a, lo- a little bit harder. Saying no is really difficult for me, mm-hmm. you know, because well, it's you also been...
1: in, a, in a cult for years that you wouldn't weren't allowed to say no. In.
2: That's true. Yeah, that's true. Totally. I think I've dealt with that part of it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that 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 part doesn't really affect me anymore. I mean, I let go of Bhagavan and his control over me back in the 90s but it still took a lot of therapy to repair that damage
1: well and it's also seeds like sometimes seeds come out like seeds are planted those seeds were planted when you were still such a baby sure so young and so it's also about awareness like okay i'm saying yes to this do i need to right now do i do i need to say yes to this does it advance that like this this or this you know the three the three things that you want to put forward in your life and if it doesn't you have to say no. And I've been learning that lately too because mm-hmm. I'm working with this new coach and I'm doing these things, I'm doing this new podcast and all those things like that and and I'm like, well, you know, not everybody's like my ideal fit, but you know, I can I love to meet people and he's like, "No, you can't do that. You have to stay focused." And and, and it's been really an interesting experience for me because you know, when we are able to take care of ourselves, we're able to take other people care of other people and the things we care about so much more. like self-care is not just about bubble baths and you know, long walks. It's that's about, right, yeah, it's about really taking care of ourselves and what's best for our needs. So yep, I, you have
2: yeah. to. And you know, I've been learning myself how to determine in my business one of the strategies that I've kind of created for me. Um, uh, And this might apply to some of your watchers who are uh, business owners themselves. Mm -hmm. I sit down the day before the next day and prepare with my assistant. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: um, uh, his name is Charlie. And Charlie and I sit down and we talk about what's going to happen the next day. And we really prioritize it in terms of what I need to focus on that's going to further the business. So I pay attention to big picture uh, things that are going to move the business forward. And I delegate everything else. And let me tell you, learning to delegate was one of the most painful things I've ever experienced in as an entrepreneur, because you feel like only you can do the best job and no one's going to be as good as you and no one's going to do it as well as you. And so when you're a control freak like that, um, letting go, delegating to someone else is terrifying.
1: Well, it is, isn't it? Because when we, it's it's actually about having control issues, which you just said, it's about being a control freak because- Absolutely. You know, this control, like it it also, but it's also, again, harkens, harkens back to stuff in our past because it keeps, makes us feel safe, It, you know, keeping But the thing is, you're 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 safe you have to say to yourself i am safe right now so um you have
2: to create that safe space for you
1: in yourself right like so you can say charlie you can say charlie you can handle this 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 and this right. and you know i'll handle the big picture which is actually a wonderful way for an entrepreneur to work because yeah, i think it's the most everything. efficient it's okay. really
2: the most efficient thing because you know you you can't uh, and it's really hard when you're limited in terms of funding. You know, when I first started out, I didn't have a lot of money for this business, and I, I I was really struggling to to get things going, and you don't have money to pay people and all this kind of stuff. And in the beginning, it's really hard. And so, um, I really struggled with that. But as the business began to grow, and at, you know we've had thousands of people come through our program at this point. And so, as the company grew and grew and grew, one of the things I, was forced to do is because we all have the same 24 hours in a day. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to switch your brain as an entrepreneur and you have to start thinking about where is my energy maximized? What are the priorities? Where, what can I focus on that is gonna make the biggest impact in my business? And for me, it comes down to three big picture items. It's content creation, coaching, and public appearances, which means the speaking engagements, the meet and greets, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's going to uh, get me out in the community and and you know get people to hear my message and expose them to our program. So those are the three areas that I have decided currently is where my focus needs to be and. Everything else is delegated to, to my staff.
1: Um, so it's like, you know, it's so interesting because I'm like, well, because the last question I ask is, what would, what would you tell someone who is deciding to go into the business you have today? But it sounds like there's so many different forks of that business. Different personalities have different, you know, are able to do different things. So-
2: I have some great advice. Okay, give it. I'll tell you, for me, it comes down to one simple quote that I have lived my entire life by. And I've said this on television many times, so people who have seen me on TV may have already know this, but it's the quote, take bold action and unseen forces will come to your aid. Mm -hmm. For me, overthinking is a disease. And as an entrepreneur, that can be death. Yeah, You can overthink yourself into the grave. Mm-hmm. And so one of the greatest skill sets that I adopted early on in this business was stop thinking about tomorrow and learn present moment awareness and just focus on what I'm doing today. Mm-hmm. And I promise you, if you will just have the faith that if you Take bold action. The unseen forces will come to your aid. Doors will open. People will come into your life. Opportunities will present themselves. And I have done this throughout my life over and over and over again. This is just a universal law that works. It does work. And it works whether you believe it or not.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: So even if you don't believe it, it's still working. It is still working. And so it's in your best interest to learn how to use it to your advantage. And these are some of the skills that we teach at Life Skills Masterclass.
1: Well, Steve, it was so amazing to hear your story and and also to sort of hear the backstory of of this pivot in your life. I really, really appreciate, you know, talking to you today. Um, It seems like we're very simpatico in a lot of ways.
2: Yes, I would love to meet you. Dad, oh, if you ever get Vegas. out to Las Vegas, please, uh, <laughs> I sent you going- my cell number, call me, let me know drinks are on me.
1: Oh, cool. Because I'm actually going the, the, um, the, the pride LGBTQ like giant national chamber. You should know this uh-huh. yeah, yeah. in Las Vegas in August. So I my yeah. wife and I will be there. So maybe I'll take you up on it. Because, please. Yeah. We, would love
2: to, we would love to meet you.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on the show today.
2: My
0: pleasure. Take care. You've been listening to Queer Business Success, the podcast that highlights LGBTQIA plus businesses. New episodes are published regularly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other listening platforms. Wherever you're listening, take a moment to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Are you an entrepreneur who's also queer? Want to share some of your wisdom and experience with the rest of us? We'd love to have you on the show. Just click the link in the show notes to apply to be a guest. Until next time, queer friends and allies, keep taking care of business.